The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Ulysses S. Grant. His is an all-American story. A physically small and modestly ambitious young lad from rural Ohio grows up to lead the Union to victory and wins the White House for a full two terms. Well, of course, the nation's top historians have written this story, but the best version is notably by Grant's own pen. His memoirs not only reveal the detailed tales of his life, but also the character of the man who worked to complete them right up to his last breath. POTUS 18's life is told by Uncle Sam Grant himself on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us understand our 18th POTUS is Dr. John Marsalek. After serving our country for a few years in the U.S. Army, he turned his attention to being a historian, educator, writer, and administrator. These days, he is a distinguished professor emeritus in the History Department of Mississippi State University. He's also the executive director and managing editor of the Ulysses S. Grant Association, which publishes Grant's papers and manages the Grant Library on the Mississippi State campus. He's been the author or editor of over 20 books, including his work on The Personal Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, The Complete Annotated Edition, which we will link to on our AmericanPOTUS.com website. John, we're honored to have you with us here on the podcast. Well, it's just great that you that you invited me, and I'm, I'm happy to. I hope I live up to my to your expectations. <laughs> John, thank you. It's been a few years since I I came down your way when I was director of the Bush Library and spoke there at the Grant Library, uh, and uh, just amazing work you're doing there. I know it's grown exponentially since then. So, congratulations on your success, and thanks so much for joining us today. The annotations you provide in this really amazing edition of the memoirs so enrich the experience of reading. How, when you were putting that together, did you decide what information to include in those annotations and what information to omit? Well, you know what, what we tried to do, and, and, I, and I have to give, give full credit to, to my to co-editors, uh, uh, the uh, Eddie Eddie is my assistant, and he uh, he was not involved in this, but he's he's done a tremendous amount of uh, of work. And, uh, and Louis Gallo, who's from, originally from West Virginia, and we hired as as one of our helpers, and he's been he's been absolutely uh, 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 terrific uh, too. So we we and then David Nolan, who's uh, who's a librarian actually, and and he's provided us with with help that. Uh, no, nobody else could provide, but but basically, when we were when we were looking at this at this project, uh, we we came to the conclusion that you know we couldn't identify everything because the book would be so big you couldn't even lift it. Right, right. So so <laughs> what we tried to do is is try to set up a, a system where it it would help the reader 
to, 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 for us to do some annotation, but not to the point that it would over, over, you know, just take, take the place mm -hmm. of, of Grant. Grant is still the person that, 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 that we're most interested in, the most people are interested in. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that we, uh, that we tried to do is we tried to imagine, uh, that, that Grant was giving an after dinner speech and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, we we were there because we wanted to be there, but but the whole idea was nobody came to see us. They came to, to hear and see you know, Ulysses as uh, as Grant. So the only time we would ever say anything, we'd sit there, we'd sit in the back of the audience, someplace <laughs> as, as editors, and, uh, and 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 we we would react if we found that he said something that wasn't really accurate and. The, the, the best thing about about this whole project was that he was very accurate. He mm -hmm. kept up on things that better than that we we certainly. Or we we, we <laughs> would use the idea that let's imagine that uh, that it's a uh, uh, that he's a schoolboy, mm -hmm. and uh, he, the fact is that he can look things up if he'd like. Uh, uh -huh. He can look them up in the uh, in a dictionary or in his computer. And so there's no need for us to, to say anything at that particular time, because if somebody doesn't know, uh, they can uh, they can look it up. Uh, so what we tried to do is 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 make sure the attention stayed as much as we could on Grant. But at the same time, we wanted to make sure that when Grant was speaking, everybody understood. And one of the things that we found was that people uh, writing or, or people reading this uh, in the 19th century knew some of these things. You know, mm -hmm. they, 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 they had heard these names before, these generals or these battles or whatever, but it's not the case today. Today, we, we just don't know any of these. Most people don't know any sure. of these names. And so we tried to identify them just enough so that that they would fit into what we're trying to uh, trying to say. So we were lucky. Grant Grant is a great writer, and yes. Grant says what he wants to say, and he says it very uh, astutely. And he was he remembered things that are absolutely amazing. And, and it is even more amazing that he remembered those things because we know he was fighting very painful terminal cancer as he completed the memoirs. How was he able to continue writing? Given the painful severity of that of that disease, yeah, that, that's that's an excellent point. And one of the things that that, that, that struck us, and I, and I say us when I say the other the other editors, uh, was one of the things about Grant is that he has just enormous courage. I mean, what he went through uh, during that time that he was writing these memoirs is just hard to hard to understand, hard to hard to believe. I mean, he was in constant constant pain and and he had to somehow keep going through this pain and continue continue working so the big thing i think to understand what what grant is doing is he wants to make sure that before he dies and he knows he's dying and there's no no question uh, about that but he wanted to finish uh finish that the the, the memoirs uh so that his wife would not be left penniless and what, what happened, I'm not going to go into the great details here, but, but a man named Ferdinand uh, Ward took all his money in a scheme. Uh, Buck, his, one of his sons, got him involved in this. It's a long and involved uh, story. And they, they find this company, Ward, a grant, and, uh, 
and Ward, and, and, and what happens is uh, Ward is seen as one of the great heroes of Wall Street. Uh, but what happens is that he, he, he just loses all his money. The bank fails, the company fails, and he tries to tries to stay you know stay on top of it. And the problem was that if he tried, I mean, his disease was so bad. If he tried to to uh, to use any kind of painkillers, it would make him sleepy, and he couldn't he couldn't think as well, and he couldn't write uh, as well. So what he did is is he he. He tried various things, and he did try various things. And one of the things was a mixture of cocaine and and water. Uh, the whole idea being that uh, that this this would would give him a little of respite from the terrible pain. But when you when you think about what he went through and what he was going through, and and he, I mean, he didn't for the longest time he he didn't even see a doctor. It was four months before he saw the doctor, and at that time he thought some bee or something had stung him at the back, at the at you know the back of his throat, and, and really that wasn't uh, wasn't the case. So what 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 he had to do? He went and, and he had the best doctor, uh, you know, the best person, well, the best throat doctor, I guess we would put it, uh, that was available at that time, Doctor John Hancock Douglas. And Douglas tried to do everything he could, but let's face it, it was just hopeless. Uh, the, the, the cancer uh, was eating away at his tonsils, basically, but at the back of his, uh, of his mouth. And so he was going through some horrible, uh, horrible uh, uh, times. And, and the result is that, uh, that he, he is suffering, but he's convinced that he's got to finish it. Not only because he he, he made the big mistake in, in losing all that money, he believes, but to also make sure that when he left, his wife would still have some money. And the interesting thing, maybe the most fascinating thing to me was that as he as he was uh, as he was going through this, he realized that that he was indeed not well let's put it this way that he he left he left the biggest royalty check he could for his wife that was something like four hundred fifty thousand dollars you can imagine and what's interesting to me particularly is that he what 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 he what he saw in that was that that there was no way that he could ever you know make that up but the fact of the matter is is that some of the money that 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 came as a result is it is roughly equivalent to eleven million dollars in, in today's money. But what what he what he got uh, was was that he, some of that money was still in family trust funds a couple of years ago. So you can just imagine what 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 he was able to accomplish. And and a lot of it, I, I go back to the very first thing I said. He was just a he had a lot of guts. He was he did. a very brave man. So I'd always heard, can you clarify for me, what was Mark Twain's role in getting these, these wonderful memoirs published? Oh, yeah, that, 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 that's a great question because most people, most people think that Mark Twain wrote the memoirs. And the actual fact, of the one thing I can say with any, with any certitude is Mark Twain wrote nothing. In the uh, in the memoirs, it was all done by Grant. Grant Grant came up with the with the ideas, and, and, and Twain didn't 
didn't didn't uh, really didn't do anything except did, did a little bit of, of editing, but not a whole not a whole lot uh, really. And 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 what what he did do is he did prevent Grant from publishing the memoirs with the Century Publishing Company, the same uh, company that uh, uh, you know that, that also uh, published that Century uh, magazine. Uh, he made sure that that the majority of the of the uh, royalties uh, would go to Grant and would go to uh, uh, Grant's wife. In fact, what what happened was uh, <laughs> Twain was just appalled when he found out that the the company Century Company was only going to be paying Grant something like ten percent of, of the cost, and he said that he's that's what a, an average. Uh, uh, how did he put it? He put it a uh, an, an Indian who had never written a book before. He oh was, my gosh! He was a racist in that way, <laughs> right, I suppose. Right, right. But he said these, you know, he said that, and uh, the result was that instead, Twain convinced Grant that he should publish with the company that Grant himself had started with his son-in-law, with his brother-in-law. Pardon me. Uh, and so basically, what it came down to. Is, is Twain came to Grant and he used to sit with him and smoke cigars even before all this took place. Uh, but in any case, they said that there was going to be 20% of the sales would go to Grant or or 70% of the profit. And, and, and Grant thought about it a long time and he took the, the latter because he said that gives me part of the the, the the problem that I might end up not not getting everything and I should take some of the risk not just not just the uh, not just the uh, uh, company so it was something like 11 to 13 million dollars in, in today's money that he made on that uh, on that particular book and it all went to uh, went to the uh, to the family particularly to uh, to Julia the wife and she lived of course into the 20th century but then and there are still descendants uh, left that belong to our uh, to our grand association for example but that that $450,000 check uh, that grant received from the Twain company uh the Webster company was it was actually what what it was called uh, that particular amount of, of money was the largest royalty check ever given to anybody up to that point in American history. And uh, very well deserved, for sure. Now, in, in those memoirs, after Grant tells us about his youth, he, he dives into the story of his time at West Point. Right. Can, can you tell us, how did, how did he perform at West Point, and how did the experiences there shape the man we know later as a general and as a president? Well, and actually, Grant is a terrible cadet <laughs> at this point. If truth be, uh, truth be known, the only reason he didn't want he didn't want to have anything to do with the military, and the only reason he went there was because his father, excuse me, his father figured out that that if he went to West Point, it wouldn't cost the father any money. Ah. And so that's why he went to uh, <laughs> uh, went to West Point. He came from a very really a poor family. His father was a was one of these guys that was a, that was always you know looking at various angles at uh, uh, you know at things and uh, and and the result is that you just never knew what was going to happen. So one day at, at dinner, uh, Grant's father says, "By the way, 
uh, you know, your friend is flunked out, a guy who lives just up the street that's flunked out of West Point. So I'm going to talk to one of my one of my people that I know, a guy that I hadn't talked, had been a friend, but I hadn't talked to for years, but I'm going to ask him to appoint you. And he said, but I don't want to go. And, and uh, Grant's father says, but I want you to go. And Grant said, well, since my father said he wanted me to go, I guess I better, I guess I better go. But that, the whole thing was just that it was going to be cheap. So when Grant got to, uh, to uh, West Point, he, he suffered through all the insults that uh, all the other people uh, suffered. And it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was one of those things where, where Grant had no choice. And so when, when he gets there, and he starts being attacked by all these uh, these people. And keep in mind too that he is a short, stocky fellow. Uh, he's about uh, about five foot one inch tall, and maybe he weighs under 115 pounds. And so it, he's not really doing a great deal. But this this congressman, uh, Thomas Hammer, who had been a good friend of Grant's father, but then at that particular point was not, but, but Grant's father had the chutzpah to actually go and ask him for the, for the uh, West Point uh, nomination, and he gave it to him. But again, the, the, the big thing Grant was concerned about was this was his great opportunity to see the country. He loved seeing what, what, uh, what, he, could, uh, what he could see. But like every plea at West Point, he was just insulted up one side, and and down the other and one of the things that, that we find in our in our museum here is that most people don't don't remember don't understand that grant was was a really good artist too we have a couple of copies and we have some some you know some real stuff of of grant that, that he had painted when he had been at west point he had studied with a man named and they all did all the students did please did the, our professor named robert weir uh and so grant has some really good uh stuff but he never painted again he just never he painted when he was there in the class but that was that was the only uh, the only thing the big thing that grant learned i think at west point was that he learned something about discipline, something that he had never really received. His mother was a very quiet person. His father did thought he was he on the moon. So he never, never, never did anything that would make Grant become, you know, reach out even further than, than he did. So going to West Point, the only reason he went was just to save the old man some money. <laughs> well, it led to great things, of course. Now, you, you mentioned uh, Julia earlier. Yeah. Can you describe their relationship to us? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Julia, how can we, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Julia. Julia is not, I wouldn't say she's an attractive woman. She has what is what is known as stra strabismus. I think, believe that's the way it's uh, it's pronounced. Uh, it was something that, that well, it, it, we would call it a cross-eye. Mm -hmm. Her mm -hmm. eyes just did not focus very well. So she was not particularly appropriate, uh, not particularly someone that was very attractive. But by the same token, she loved the horseback ride. And Grant loved the horseback ride. So when, and, and he had spent his senior year uh, at West Point uh, with her brother in the, in the in the same room, and so when he was assigned uh, 
He was assigned fairly close to where Julie lived, and they came in contact, and he went horseback riding, et cetera. And over time, uh, over time, uh, it, uh, it, it, it worked out. I mean, they, they, they fell in love. And a lot of it, I think, is, has to do because of the, uh, of the horseback uh, riding. But I think importantly, too, she loved Grant unconditionally. I mean, at, at one time when he was just, he was just not doing well at all. Uh, you know, he was, he was just not doing well. And she thought he's going to be president someday. And wow. everybody laughed at her. They said, are you kidding me? This guy going to be president? It'll never, it'll never happen. And even when he was at West Point, uh, I mean, he didn't, he didn't study particularly. He read novels. And so he read things like uh, like Lytton uh, Bulwer's books, or he read uh, James Fenmore Cooper's novels. And, and remember, at that time, people didn't people like soldiers who were serious people didn't read stuff like that. But she she thought he was uh, he was uh, terrific. And even her father didn't like Grant because he didn't like the fact that he was going to go into the going into the army. That was not a, a particularly good thing for, uh, for him to be doing. So, so uh, I think from the minute they met till the minute they died, she, she had unconditional love for him, and he had unconditional love for her. Now, John, is it true? I, I seem to recall that at some point when they were a bit well off that, that she said she might get surgery for her eye condition, and yes. Ulysses said no, right? Yeah, right. That's that. That's yeah. that's, that's, that's very true. She at one time, uh, early on, when she was a young girl, had talked about having surgery, but she didn't want to. She didn't decided not to do. Then, when he became president, uh, she she said, "You know, a president should have a good-looking wife, and I'm not good-looking, so I'm going to have surgery." And he said, "No, don't do it. I met you with that eye." I fell in love with that eye, and I'm going to, you're going to keep that eye as long as we live. And they did. In the memoirs, we, we, we go from West Point to some amazing uh, chapters on the war in Mexico. What did he learn in the war with Mexico about warfare, but maybe more importantly about his own abilities? Yeah, I, I think, and again, you know, people, people debate that, that whole thing, but I think that Grant became Grant in Mexico. It was there that he that he first felt the the, the, the being part of the army at West Point. Uh, I, I don't I don't see that quite as much. But I, I think Grant learned everything he knew about fighting and about war uh, at West Point. You know, you you think of the story where he takes the, the cannon up to the belfry. Uh, of the church, that, I mean, that's an amazing, amazing story. Or maybe even more amazing is the is the story where he uh, yeah, he the, the American army needs ammunition, and they've got to get it from point A to point B in this little little town. And so, who volunteers to ride kind of side saddle off one side, hanging on to the to the, to the saddle? Uh, through this Mexican town, and it was there he learned something about about how to dress from uh, Zachary Taylor, and and then he also he also saw how uh, Winfield Scott dressed, and he didn't want to didn't ever want to do that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, the thing that strikes me was he was a quartermaster in in uh, uh, 
in the Mexican War. And as a quartermaster, he, he really felt kind of bad about it because he said he wasn't getting the experience of combat that some of his friends were getting. So what he does, he just sneaks into battle a couple times and uh, uh, he, he fights in the, in the Mexican War. And I think one of the things he finds there and in other places too is that he might be worried about what the, what the uh, you know, his, his, the people that he's fighting might be thinking about how afraid they are of him. But the point is that he may be afraid of them, but they're also afraid of him. So he came to realize, I think, in a, in a number of places, that all he had to do was just keep pushing forward, keep pushing forward, and that the other side would quit. And I think that has an enormous impact on uh, what he does uh, uh, during the, uh, the Civil War. So uh, he, the, he learned, I think, in, in, in a lot of the, that place and in other places that his enemy was just as fearful of him as Grant was of his enemy. And he fought alongside people he would either later fight against or fight alongside in the Civil War during the Mexican War as well. Right, and he, and, and that's true. And, and, he, and that's something not as, not as important, but I think what he, what he, finds, what he finds is that, that in a couple of battles, he's, he's finding out that, that he comes over this hill and he expects to be met by the opposing forces and there's nobody there. That they're so afraid of him, they've left. And so that, that's a lesson that I think but the, that he's learned, yeah. After the war in Mexico, why did Grant, when he was assigned out to the West Coast, to California, why did he fare so poorly there? And what does he say in the memoirs about subsequently leaving the Army? Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's, that's a really interesting question because that's the time when, when people begin to think that he is an alcoholic, that he's a drunk. And we don't really... I, I don't I don't see that. I mean, I can see where the fact of the matter is, is that soldiers at that time just drank a lot. That's all they had to do yeah. was to drink. So, <laughs> so yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So uh, what I think what it really, really came down to is that, is that Grant missed his wife and his family. I mean, he'd never seen the one young uh, young boy, the the guy that that bankrupted him uh, later on. But uh, the thing was that he would write to Julia, but Julia, maybe because of the eye, I, I, I really don't know why, but she did not always write back to him as, as faithfully as, as possible. So he oftentimes, he felt bored. Uh, he felt that he needed his family uh, with him. Uh, later on, you remember, he took uh, Fred, his oldest son, into the Civil War. Uh, with him. And I, I love the story, and I don't know anything much about it, but the story of Colonel Robert Buchanan, uh, who's his commanding officer in, uh, in uh, California. Uh, and Buchanan's a martinet. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that, because everybody was drinking. Why he, why he picked down Grant more than anybody else is, is just hard to, hard to understand. But Buchanan told Grant, either you shape up or I'm going to fire you from this army. And I'm going to I'm going to make sure you never get another position uh, any place, et cetera. So you better better do this. And he doesn't want to let Julia know that he could be a failure in this because her father's given her problems, et cetera. Um, but I, I, I think what 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 is happening is Grant is is trying to survive 
by himself, but he can't survive by himself because he loves Julia so much and he wants her and wants the children, who a couple of them he's never even seen before, uh, wants them to, to, uh, to, to, be near, to be near him. So even when he goes back to uh, St. Louis, to the St. Louis area, uh, he kind of sneaks in because he doesn't know how he's going to be received by his family uh, because of these things that are being said about him. Truly a difficult time when he gets back to St. Louis, but kind of skipping over that unfairly, I know for our listeners, but going right to the Civil War, the, the level of detail that Grant provides about those battles is really amazing. And I, I remember I first read the memoirs when, when I was appointed to be Bush director, and I was there for a couple of months. And I thought, I've never read these, and I was just transfixed by them. And you really do feel like you're, you're, you're there with him. Did he, you mentioned earlier, he had a great memory. Was it just a great memory? Was he using any type of archives or assistance as he wrote the book? Well, yeah, both, all, all, all things that you mentioned yeah, there. Okay. First of all, I think Grant was a great storyteller. We don't, we don't often think of the fact that, that he could really, he would mesmerize people. In, he was a great conversationalist. You don't think of that. You think of him being, well, he's, you know, that's not very important to him. But the other thing was that he had a terrific memory. He remembered things long after others had, uh, had already forgotten about that. And uh, he remembered these things. And so he reacted to them. So when he's writing, uh, when, when he's writing his memoirs, you know, the, 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 and that took, a, that took a real effort to get him to even do that. Uh, it's true that, that, that his oldest son, Fred, helped him. So did Adam Badeau, who was an aide, and he helped him with with uh, with some of the some of the issues. Uh, what and what they would do is Grant would write the thing, and then they would take a look at it and make sure that what he was saying uh, is accurate. If it's not accurate, they tell him. John Rollins is another one who's a friend of his from from his hometown of Galena. Is also involved, so I I think it's it's a combination of things. Grant is a has a terrific memory. He's a great storyteller, and I think too that that he did have some really good help. Fred Fred is a strange strange. We don't we don't like Fred a whole lot. <laughs> that he just seems. Uh, well, he's anti-black for one thing, and he's he, there's, there's a bunch of other things. But but he was he was a very good aide to 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 his father, uh, and even when he went into the uh, to the war, he learned some things from that war, and uh, so all of this helped helped uh, make uh, uh, Grant's memoirs that much better. One thing I'm always struck by is the comparison between Grant and so many other Union generals who were. Just failures at the end of the day. What what, expl what explains the difference between Grant and someone like McClellan? Well, I I think um, that Grant was successful as a general when people like McClellan and others uh, were not. Uh, came down to something as simple as he had no political ambitions. I mean, he really didn't. You know, he said, yes, he did talk about wanting to be president at times, but not, not to the point that, say, of a McClellan who would do anything to be, <laughs> to, be, to be president. So what Grant was interested in basically was just doing what was right, what was correct. He did, it didn't matter if it hurt him or if it hurt somebody else, but he said that, the important thing was that, that he 
would would do what what was right and and, and if he suffered as a result that was too bad and, and then again you get this thing where over the, he never worried like Sherman said he never worried about uh, who was over the next hill uh, and and how he would deal with it he, he'd take care of it later when it, when the time came Sherman would be worried about who was over that hill and would try to try to try to do something uh, but again I, I I think what it what it came down to is is that Grant was so successful that he just did what he thought should be done. It didn't matter if it hurt his cause or, or hurt him or made him look bad or made anybody look bad. He just did what was right. What did he, looking back, think was his greatest success in the Civil War? And did, did he have a, a blunder that he regretted during the war? Yeah, he. I, I think... And again, it was interesting because at lunch today, I was talking to a couple of our editors and I, and I asked them that question. I said, what do you think? And, uh, you know, they, they came up with some, some good answers. But basically, I think, and, and what then we finally came down to was Grant really believed that what he did at Vicksburg was his greatest triumph. That, that he accomplished so much there that somebody else could not have done. Uh, and, and I think that's that was that was the, the major major phenomenon. And just like Cole Harbor was was the was the phenomenon where he where he did the wrong thing, where he said, in fact, uh, I, I wrote it down here someplace. Uh, Grant said in his memoirs, "quote I have always regretted that the last assault at Cole Harbor ever took place." And that was where the casualties to the Union were. Something like twelve thousand, and casualties for the uh, for the Confederates was about six six thousand two hundred or something. So, but but that that I think is is what what Grant did. Grant look at the situation, and even even that situation at Cold Harbor, he said, "I should have never done it. I made a mistake." And how many generals? would admit that. No, not, not, not many. No, no, certainly not McClellan. You're right. <laughs> so, now, now, of course, you know, I, for several years was director of the, of the Lincoln Library Museum and, and that relationship between Lincoln and Grant was so important. I, I recall regarding Vicksburg, doesn't Lincoln write Grant after Vicksburg and say, uh, you were right and I was wrong. I, I shouldn't have doubted you on that. What, what, what does Grant say in his memoirs about that relationship with Lincoln? Yeah, that, that that's an excellent excellent uh, point. What I I think what 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 Grant and the reason Grant and and uh, and Lincoln got along so well uh, is because they agreed. I mean, they they both came to the conclusion that what needed to be done was that pressure had to be put on the Confederates and pressure had to be put and pressure had to be put and you couldn't let them go. You couldn't let them, you couldn't let uh, Robert E. Lee maneuver. You had to go after them, uh, you know, as much as, as much as you could. So I think, uh, I think that's, that's, that's the major, major phenomenon that, that, that Grant has is that he's just, in fact, he even says, you know, the famous story of where, when he's going off to the Mexican war and, uh, he, he decides he's got to see got to see Julia for the last time, and he gets to the Gravois Creek near between between uh, where he's stationed and where she is uh, she is living, and the, the, they he comes to this and he could have gone around or he could have not gone, but he said I had a superstition that once I started something, 
And once I went in a certain direction, I would never turn back. If you, if you think about that, that's precisely what Grant does during the Civil War. He just never turns, never turns back. And, and I think the result is that, that he's, he's able to accomplish things because he's constantly putting pressure on the other side. I recall Lincoln's note to him telling him to hang on with a bulldog grip yes. from a crickler. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> we wrote a, a book here in, in our area here called Hold On With a Bulldog Grip. Like because, because, in fact, all the, all the pictures that you see of Grant during the Civil War show him as a bulldog. So yeah. <laughs> we, we like that. that and and what's, what makes it even more interesting is the president of the university wrote an article on Stephen D. Lee that is included in that particular book. He gave that book to every incoming freshman. So oh, oh, they wonderful. all got the so so we we were we didn't make any money out of the deal because he paid yeah. for it, but, but still <laughs> it, was, it was a wonderful, wonderful yeah. thing, you know. A great thing for them to have for sure. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, of course, John, this last couple of questions, moving beyond the memoirs just for a second, because of course in the memoirs he doesn't talk about his presidency. We know that presidency in recent years has been undergoing a reevaluation. It's seen in much more positive light than it had been in past years. What would you cite as President Grant's most important initiatives and accomplishments? Yeah, that that that's an excellent question, and I have to have to be completely honest with you. That was one of the toughest questions you uh, you, know, <laughs> you, you asked huh. because you know, I, we talked talking about this at lunch, uh, you know, today. There's so many different things that happened during the presidency that are so important to him. But what 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 I've come down to, and what the, the other guys aren't going <laughs> to disagree with me, but uh, but first of all, I think is that Fifteenth Amendment. He came to see how important that Fifteenth Amendment was. Uh, that he needed to take a stand and he needed to make sure that that the former slaves now free did have a chance to participate in, in, in American society at that particular at that particular point. And I think the same thing happened with the Ku Klux Klan. His 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 attitude toward the Klan that he had to he had to make sure that those enforcement acts of 1870 and 1871 were passed because the result would be that it would be you know just be a horrible thing if the war was fought and then these men who had given their uh, part in that war, as Lincoln himself said, uh, it, it just, it just something, something has to be done to make sure that they, that they, that they, their role is, is recognized. And I think in the same, same way of, of thinking is the, uh, is the uh, uh, Treaty of Washington, uh, of May of, I think it's 1871, uh, that what Lincoln could, I mean, pardon me, what Grant could have done is he could have fought the British over this whole issue of the, of the Alabama claims, et cetera, et cetera. But he did. He instead, he took care of the problems. He, he, he negotiated the problems. One, one, of the, one of our editors said the big thing about Grant was that he was a negotiator and he was a diplomat more than he was a soldier. And that, that's that's an interesting interesting phenomenon to uh, uh, to consider. But I but I think I think that the, what what we're seeing now is that Grant is being seen as someone 
who does play an important role in the in the uh, 20th and uh, 19th century, once particularly once Lincoln, uh, you know, is gone, then then you have this this whole situation where the great hero uh, is Grant. And when you think about it, think about this: Grant is the only two-term president between Andrew Jackson and Woodrow Wilson. So all that time, nobody was given a second term except for Grant. And so this, this whole idea, I think, the whole idea why Grant is, is, was pushed down so badly was part of the lost cause phenomenon. I mean, it just, it just happened. And actually, I misspoke earlier, John. My, uh, my next question goes back to the memoirs, of course, but, <laughs> but, but in a general way. So other than the details, the amazing details he provides us, what do you think Grant was trying to tell the readers of the memoirs about himself and about his country? Yeah, that, 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 that's, an, that's, that's another tough question. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I really, really thought, thought about that a, a good bit, and I kept changing my mind, et cetera. <laughs> but, I, but I think... Uh, I, I, I think maybe what 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 Grant is trying to say in in in, in this whole phenomenon is that he exemplifies the American dream. He's a guy who comes from a poor family, comes from a from, from a nobody. I mean, he's a people look at him and say, "This guy is going to be the general that's going to save the civil, you know, that's going to save." The, Say mm -hmm. the, the fighting in, in the yeah. Civil War, etc. It, it just doesn't make it doesn't make sense. So I think what he's saying is is that in American society, even as early as his time, and as as weak as he was, and he had, he would admit this himself, was he becomes a superstar. He goes from being a nobody to being the the, the major figure in in American uh, in American life. Um, and, and, and I think he also says that as, a, as because of what is happening, that if you, if you look at the memoirs, and I can't remember, it's near the end someplace, uh, he shows, he, he says, I think, and, or he shows, uh, I think, that like, like anybody else, he could be on the world stage, like any other American, somebody, a nobody like him, could become yeah. one of the major figures in American in American life, mm -hmm. I, and I and I and I yeah. often think of uh, of Grant and Bismarck when Grant yeah. is is on his world tour and he's and he's visiting uh, going to be visiting. They expect him to, to to have all these people supporting him and you know the the trailer the the guys on horseback and he walks up and knocks the door and says can I see Mr Bismarck? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just that's just not not something. Right. But I think Grant understands that and understands that that and I think Americans understand that that here's a guy who could show that he could hold his own. He's just a poor American, but he could hold his own on the world stage. John, a lot of great conversation here about Grant and what he wrote about his own life, but let's dig a little deeper into his personality, okay? Sure. Let's start with his name, Ulysses S. Grant, or U.S. Grant, almost seems too good to be true for a national hero. 
But there's a somewhat complicated path to this well-known identity, right? It, 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 there, there's so many, there's so many things that you can say. I, I, one of my favorite, I think, I suppose, is is that 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 comment that, that's been made by you and by others that something about that name seems too good to be true uh, to be <laughs> to be a leader. Uh, of, a, of a great rebellion, of a, of a, yeah, a great rebellion, basically, uh, to be a national hero, and and yet Grant is one of these people, and I think he he, the very fact that that, that when he was born, his family got together and decided what what's going to be his name, and, and they basically decided his name is going to be Hiram, and Hiram's not a not a very very big name to be used for a general, but where Ulysses somehow just grabs your attention and yeah, this guy is really, is really, is really something. But I, I love the part too, where they call him Ulysses, uh, uh, Hiram Ulysses Grant, which spelled for short was Hug. And you can imagine going <laughs> right, right. to West Point with the nickname. So that, that's that, he understood that. And he, uh, remember the famous story about the, uh, Oh, he, he had a, a relative of some sort build a place for to keep where he could a trunk where he could take his goods and they they put HUG in the outside. He said, "No, no, no, let's change that." By all accounts, he was an amazing horseman. Is it fair to say this was his number one passion? You know, that thing that not just got him where he needed to go, but something that he could always work on and maybe have some alone time with. You know, that famous episode at the graduation where he jumps over this. Uh, this high thing that that, that the, uh, the 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 master the writing master establishes it's just it's just beyond my capability and nobody could believe it because he didn't look like the part and I love the part where where um, his uh, his mother uh, is told by some of the neighbors you know what your son is doing he's going into the stables and he's he's walking around where the horses are where they might step on him. And to which he responds, but horses just seem to understand Ulysses. And so I think that, that there, there's something that something there that that gave him the, the, the gave him the, the situation where he could be outstanding in some way. And I think in his own in his own mind, he knew that he was the best horseman around. That nobody nobody could deal with horses as well as he could. And, and when we think about it. Horses were much more important at, at that period in history uh, than than they are uh, than they are today. Certainly, a general and a president. Which title do you think meant the most to him? I never got the feeling that he thought that being a, a president of the United States was that, that big a deal. Uh, that that he did it because he, he well, as he, say, he himself said, I'm doing it because I want to make sure the Civil War was not fought in in vain. He was physically small, just five and a half feet tall, thin, did not like to hunt, hated the sight of blood, pretty much breaking every stereotype yes. of a rugged battlefield general. Now, was this image a problem for him rising through the ranks, or are we just more aware of it today? No, I, I, think, I think we're more of it today. Uh, it, it struck me that the, the situation there is if you look at Grant and you look at Lee, they're both not, not the rugged Types 
generals that, that you that you wouldn't maybe normally normally think of. And maybe maybe because when you stop and think, I mean, some of the some of the stuff that Grant said and did, some of the stuff Lee said and did, it doesn't it doesn't seem to fit very well with you know what 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 they're saying about uh, about the other guy and what they're saying about what a general should be. And yet they both understood that they both had to be gentlemen, but but killing was still part of their job. And that that that's the part that, that's most fascinating to me, I yeah. think. Now finally this is a question more for you and about you, John. How is it that the Grant Presidential Library and Museum is in Mississippi? The heart of the South. How is that? <laughs> that you know, I'm laughing because if if I was if you were to ask me what was the question that most people asked when they came to the museum? Well, now you can clear it up for the world. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. No, I, I think I think what it what it is, and, and the reason we we have it is is. There's there's a lot of lot of reasons, but but I think you know it was at uh, uh, at Southern Illinois University and uh, Frank Williams, the president of the of the Grand Association, was involved in it. And I was involved with it, and uh, and several uh, several presidents of Mississippi State, you know, interim presidents, and that were in, involved in it. But I, I think we I think what we did. Is we did, and I, and, I, and I hope you won't you'll take this in the right way. But I think what we did is we made sure that what we had here, whether it was Grant, whether it was Lincoln, or whatever it was, was being taken care of properly. I think we I think we did a did a good job of that, and I, I think uh, we we made an effort to go out and talk to groups and. and and, and and answer questions as best we could. So I think that may be that may be the uh, uh, maybe the reason why why uh, uh, the presidential library ended up here. And importantly, too, our president, uh, Mark Keenum, is a, uh, I shouldn't laugh, because, but but he is a a Civil War nut. And so that really helped a lot too. And so when when we, when it came to to going to the legislature to get money to build this museum, he was willing to do that. And, and I think that helped a lot. And our, our former presidents, one of, one of our former presidents, believe it or not, is my godson. And that, that makes it even more, more interesting. But, but, but I, think we, I think the people here understood, and, and it, it, it's interesting, but people here understood that what we had here was precisely here, as Frank Williams likes to say. I like that, and he's given his Lincoln wonderful Lincoln collection here too. It is that that this would show the world, show the nation that that the Civil War is finally over. That we can have a we can have something like a Grant Presidential Library or a Lincoln Presidential Library here in the in the Deep South in, in the Confederacy, and nobody makes a thing out of it. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I have had maybe one person in, in the about 10 years that we've been here uh, who, who said, you know, you shouldn't be here. This is terrible. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Most people are just so excited about the fact that we have the grant papers here that they that, that they react uh, react 
just the way you, you'd want them to react. And uh, so I have not had to really suffer at all maybe here as president of this of this library. It's been it's been a great experience because the, the alumni and the faculty and the students all think it's just wonderful. So, John, I know first before the library and museum were created, the papers project came there. Am I getting this chronology right? So tell, tell us. That, that core project, what is the documentary editing project of the grant papers? Mm -hmm. If you would come here, you haven't seen yeah. what we, you know, you saw the downstairs. But what, what we have now is we have, uh, we have office space. We have a wonderful place just outside my office where we, we, we hire students and they can do some things. Oh, wow. And then we have a cold storage room, which we love to, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to sell yeah, tickets yeah. in August. But, but anyway, if you look at that and, and, and you go to this one area and you look down the line of file cabinets and you see how many letters grant, uh, how many grant letters are there, it is just absolutely amazing. I mean, it, people are just flabbergasted by, by what, they, what they see. And we do get a lot of, um, we get a lot of um, phone calls and we get a lot of letters and emails and that asking, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? So we, 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 we I think we're doing, we're doing some good. We're, we're, we're getting that information out. And I have to tell you, John Y. Simon was an absolute genius when it came to doing this. I mean, if anybody's responsible for, for what, what has been accomplished here, it's, it's, it's well, what's been accomplished in the Grand Presidential Library. That's John Y. John y. Simon. And by the way, his wife is still a member of our, of our board of directors. Oh, wonderful. So wonderful. that makes it even, even greater. Yes, of course. Now, what is next for you, John, and what's next for the Library Museum? Well, what we're doing now, believe it or not, uh, I wish we, I wish I could say we were making great progress, but we're not. Uh, we, we are we are doing. Harvard Press is. We signed a contract with them to 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 to, uh, to do a same thing to Grant to Sherman what we did to Grant to have oh, okay. a, have a book like this done. And we and we we've 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 made some progress on it. But the problem is Grant was, you know, just pretty much said what he wanted to say now is that Sherman says if he ran into somebody walking over to, to my office, he would mention them in his book, and we'd have to look them up. In it. <laughs> so it, it's, it's that sort of thing. And then we're also trying. We 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 have worked a deal with um, University of Virginia Press, where mm -hmm. where where we, uh, we we know where where you you take our grant. The, the 32 grand volumes and bring them together with all the other volumes that, that they've had of, of presidents. And that, that's, that's been a big help too, because that, that's given us some little money, but it's also given us a, a way for people to, to, to use some of this material in a way that, that it wasn't used. So, so we're, we're, we're still working, working away. We're, we're still yeah. doing some things. We, as I said, we did this this grant thing. We did the hold on with a bulldog grip. We're doing something mm -hmm. with the uh, with the uh, uh, with 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 the problem of Sherman. Uh, but what it what it really comes down to to go back to the very first thing we talked about is it just it is this pandemic has just really hurt us financially mm -hmm. and in, in other ways. The university's yeah. doing a terrific job of supporting us, but yeah, not not we still need more support. 
Well, you certainly deserve that support, doing amazing things there. John, really great catching up with you, and thank you for joining us on American POTUS. Well, listen, it's great. Thank you for the honor, and uh, but we're going to wait for you two guys now to come and do a program from here sometime. Oh, that'd be great. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS Podcast. We would appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now. We're grateful for every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank John Marsalek for joining us on this episode about Ulysses S. Grant. More information on his book, The Personal Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, the complete annotated edition, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions, comments on this episode, or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter, so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Ulysses Grant, quote, It was my fortune or misfortune to be called to the office of chief executive without any previous political training.